that thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no hollow, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul. Whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome, creeps and peepers, to another edition of Scared to Death. I'm Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm Lindsay. Hello. Thanks. Hello. Thanks for thanks for being here, Lindsay. Oh my gosh, Every you're week. so welcome. Every well, week. Th- thank you for showing up. I mean, really, you're great. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, thank you all for either listening or watching on YouTube. I was just, uh, you know, getting in the mood again with our intro. Yeah. You know, I kind of got, you know, scared, got used to it. Now I'm, and I'm like, oh yeah, it's very spooky. I it's like very it. spooky. <laughs> uh, thanks for the continued ratings and reviews online and for telling your friends and for turning this into one of the most popular horror podcasts uh, out there. So yeah. we're, we're very fortunate. Thank you. Thanks thank you, for, thank you, thank you. <laughs> thanks for continuing to buy Scared to Death merch. A uh, very cool Necro Machine t-shirt in the badmagicmerch.com store today. Eek. Eek. Uh, some kind of goat monster riding a motorcycle motorcycle through hell kind yeah. of situation. He's pretty cool. He's pretty cool. Yeah. He's a pretty cool goat monster demon guy. Yeah, he's a badass. Uh, I, I, very metal. I need, a, I need a bunch of our new stuff. You I have do? not ordered anything in a while. Well, give me your order, man. I know. I, I got, got the hookup. You, have, you, you know people. I do. I do. <laughs> You have uh, you have two stories for us today. I actually have three. Three. I have three. Well, don't get don't get too excited. Okay. The last one's a little palate cleanser. It's okay. just a, a brief. We had one a couple of weeks yeah. ago. Just you know, kind of like a sweet little something something. Okay. Kind of. <sighs> I like that. So we got yeah. so we got three listener paranormal tales, and uh, and I have two, of course. Uh, of course. First, we have a tale of two haunted houses and some other strange happenings, all tied to one early Hollywood movie star, oh. Jean Harlow. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, the original blonde bombshell. Yeah, howdy butati. After that, we return to urban legends and take a look at one of the most popular creepypasta stories out there, Jeff the Killer. Okay. An online horror tale with perhaps some real-life tragedy attached to it. Okay, well, that sounds not great. Mm-hmm, so who knows how much more truth may be tied to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's quite a bit of uh, setup for this first story. So you can get settled in as, okay. I, uh, as I set the stage. Well, I have some, some low-cut unicorns mm. on today. Can you see those guys? Look at my nice white pasty legs. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been outside. You look good. I'm pasty. It's fine. I don't know why. I don't know why. Uh, I don't think everybody hates pasty. Like well, um, white I, skin's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, you know, I mm-hmm. avoid the sun at all costs. You do. You not do. because I'm a vampire, mm-hmm. but because I am a weird skin aging obsession thing. Like I might have been a small Korean woman in my past <laughs> life. I, like I, I just think that tan's a good look, and also not tan is a good look. Like, like yeah, it, it just, just depends on the person. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Exactly. Well, let's now that we're super. Spoopy mood. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into it. So, uh, uh, the was basically the golden age of Hollywood actress Jean Harlow. Haunted is this first tale. Did some spirits attach itself to her? Uh, was she cursed? She led such a short life, both triumphant and tragic. She seems to have lived in at least two very haunted houses, and she was connected to one very mysterious death and possible murder. And a strange apparition witnessed in one of the homes she lived in may be connected to additional murders, some of Hollywood's most notorious and gruesome killings, in fact. Oh, the Black Dahlia? Mm, no. Oh. 
Yes, that's a very, very uh, notorious one. Uh, but the Manson family murders. Ooh. Some of those. Mm-hmm. So to start this story, we need to go back to 1911, the year of her birth. Mm-hmm. Born Harleen Harlow Carpenter. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Jean Harlow was the actress during uh, Hollywood's golden age for whom the term blonde bombshell was originally coined. Legendary beauty. Long before Marilyn Monroe, Harlow was Hollywood's first mega-famous sex symbol. Dazzling audiences with her expressive eyes and impish smile. She could turn from coy and innocent to suggestive and seductive in just a moment. After four years of struggling to get parts, Harlow signed a contract with giant studio Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM, 1932. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, maybe. Uh, Billionaire producer Howard Hughes turned Harlow from a bit actress into a leading lady. And when Harlow was 22... Coming off a string of successful movies, director Paul Burns signed her on to act in The Beasts of the City. Mm-hmm. Paul was born in Germany in 1889 as Paul Levy. He left school at 14 after leaving school. Byrne made his way to New York where he worked a, a bit as a stage actor before transitioning to work for a film company in Toronto. And then in 1926, he moved to Los Angeles where he quickly built a reputation for having one of the best minds for business in Hollywood. And after filming wrapped up, Harlow and Byrne did a six-week press tour for Beast of the City, traveling together across the country, and by the end of it, they were in love. Of course. When news of their relationship broke, the public was shocked. Harlow had never shown any interest in dating fellow actors. She'd already been married to an heir from Chicago, married at 16, divorced at 18, and Jean had lived with her mother ever since. Byrne was literally twice her age, and outside of a small circle of Hollywood executives, no one knew who he was. Harlow was one of the most beloved actresses of her time. People were even more shocked when Harlow and Byrne married in July of 1932. She was 21 and he was 42. Fine, whatever. They each took just one day off from production and promotion and then went right back to work. Jean moved into Paul's huge home on 9820 Easton Drive in Beverly Hills, a two-story Bavarian-style mansion situated on a five-acre lot with multiple carriage houses. Oh my God, five acres in Beverly Hills. <laughs> Early in their marriage, Harlow appeared to uh, the outside world to be radiantly happy, and the same could not be said for Byrne. Every day he seemed more haggard and pale than the last. Every day his friends and coworkers worried about him a little bit more. And then just three months later, three months after they get married, Paul Byrne is dead. Oh. A butler walked into his office at his new mansion, September 5th, 1932, and found his naked body on the floor, Killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. Was it self-inflicted? Maybe, maybe not. Instead of calling the police, the butler immediately called MGM. And then a couple of studio, quote, fixers Mm -hmm. came to the house. Two hours later, those fixers called the police. And when officers arrived, one of the studio men handed one of them Burns' suicide note that read, Dearest Dear, Unfortunately, this is the only way to make you, to make good the frightful wrong I have done you and to wipe out my abject humiliation. I love you, Paul. You understand that last night was only a comedy. No one could offer any insight regarding this strange cryptic note except for Burns' assistant, Mrs. Harrison, who emphatically expressed that the note was not written by Paul. She thought it definitely was not his handwriting. Oh. Davis, a gardener at the home, agreed with her that Paul Byrne did not write that note. Suspicions of murder were reported in the papers, and in the court of public opinion, Gene Harlow was the primary suspect. Uh. The studio responded by doubling down on their belief that the note was, in fact, Paul's. They also then alleged that Byrne's short marriage had been filled with physical abuse, that Byrne had beaten Harlow. They claimed he had been violent to Harlow because he was impotent, and this was what the letter alluded to when Paul wrote about the frightful wrong I have done to you. 
In the months after Paul's death, the studio went even further, claiming that Paul was biologically unfit for marriage, implying that he was homosexual. Oh. Was any of this true? None of these accusations had surfaced before Byrne's death. Was all of this said just to save Harlow's image so that she could continue acting as an MGM leading lady and continue to be a major cash cow for the studio? Allegedly pressured by the studio, the coroner ruled Byrne's death a suicide. Mm-hmm. Adding to the doubtfulness of Paul's death being a suicide, it was later discovered that Paul had been married once before to Dorothy Millette and possibly never divorced. Dorothy would kill herself uh, in Sacramento the night after Paul died. And some think, what? some think she not only visited Paul the night he died, but that she's the one who pulled the trigger. There was letters written between the two that were found later. Oh, interesting. Jean Harlow moves out of their mansion immediately following Byrne's death. She soon began to have an affair with the boxer Max Baer, who was still legally married. To defuse another potential scandal, MGM arranged Harlow to be married to a photographer named Harold Rawson. The two divorced eight months later. Four years and many profitable movies later, Jean Harlow died from kidney failure at the age of only 26. She'd been married four times, and while wealthy and famous, her life had also been incredibly tumultuous and tragic. And both the home she lived in with Paul Byrne and the home she lived in directly before with Paul would gain reputations for being haunted after her death. Time now for the tale of Jean Harlow's two haunted homes. In 1963, a famous hairstylist named Jay Sebring bought the Byrne Harlow house. He was reportedly attracted to its dark history. At the time, Sebring was dating a struggling actress named Sharon Tate. They moved in together while she auditioned and he franchised his business. Sharon often stayed in the house alone while Jay traveled to New York and London for work. And more than once, Sharon claimed she was woken up in the middle of the night when Jay was away by what she referred to as a creepy little man appearing in her room. Oh, no thank you. She said the shadowy entity had especially dark hair and a frantic look in his eyes, and whenever Sharon called out to him, he'd disappear. For several nights in a row, she saw this man, this entity, this male figure, whatever it was, and night after night, she tried to shake off the sightings and just go back to sleep. And then one night, she woke up and did not see him, But she had a strange feeling that this creepy little man was somewhere nearby. Staying in bed, she leaned over and turned on her bedside lamp and saw something stirring outside her open bedroom door. The strange little man was back. She wondered if she was awake or dreaming. And then she claimed this shadowy figure entered and ran around her room. She said it ran right past her bed, then back out of her room and down the stairs. How weird. And she jumped out of bed, threw on a bathrobe, ran down the stairs to see if it was still inside the house. And then things got even crazier. She said when she peered over the staircase and looked down towards the main floor before heading down, she saw what appeared to be someone tied to the staircase with a long rope. What? She didn't know if it was a man or a woman, but she knew deep in her gut that she was somehow witnessing either herself or her boyfriend Jay Sebring being hurt. She saw a pool of blood pooling beneath this figure on the floor. And then this whole surreal scene vanished. Susan ran downstairs, or I'm sorry, Sharon ran downstairs, poured a stiff drink. As she tried to steady herself, she heard a voice rip the wallpaper, it said. And she didn't know why, but she did as it asked. She then walked back up the stairs, past where the apparition tied to the railing had been, and back to bed. And even though she knew she couldn't sleep, she wouldn't be able to sleep, her eyes closed, and she did sleep until the morning. The next day when Jay returned, 
She told him about the odd experience. They both laughed it off as a dream. But then Sharon saw the little rip she'd made the night before in the wallpaper. There was no dream. Did she dream, uh, you know, the rest of it? Did she not dream the rest of it? Did it somehow actually happen? If so, what did it mean? She never saw the creepy little man again. Sharon and Sebring would break up and Sharon would marry director Roman Polanski. She and Jay would remain friends. And a couple years later, in August of 1968, Sharon did an interview for Fate magazine. The interviewer, Dick Kleiner, asked her if she'd ever had any psychic experiences. And she described the entire thing, including in her own words, the creepy little man. But she didn't know what to make of it all. She said, yes, I've had a psychic experience. At least I guess that's what it was. And it was a terribly frightening and disturbing thing for me. It happened a year or so ago. Maybe you can explain it. Or maybe something else can explain it. Maybe some entity in the Burn Harlow house was trying to warn Sharon of what might happen to her, what did end up happening to her, to her and Jay. Almost exactly a year after her interview, on August 8, 1969, a heavily pregnant Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Wojciech Frykowski, and Abigail Folger went to dinner and returned to the Polanski and Tate's home. Roman was in Europe shooting a movie. And later that night, four members of Charles Manson's family entered the home intent on mayhem and murder. Jay and Sharon were tied together at one point with a rope, like her vision. Weird. Jay begged for Sharon's life and the life of her unborn child before he was shot and stabbed. Sharon was stabbed 16 times. They both died in pools of their own blood. Was that little creepy man warning them about this night when Sharon saw the bleeding figure tied to the stairs in the Burn Harlow house. After Jay Sebring's murder, the Burn Harlow house was sold to a doctor and his family, and it's reportedly still owned by that same family today. Oh. And neighbors have recently reported seeing a male, shadowy apparition on the grounds. Uh. Is it the same strange, creepy little man? <sighs> Did Jean ever see this man when she lived there? Could this apparition have had anything to do with Paul Byrne's death? And did this thing follow Jean to that home from her previous residence, a home also alleged to be haunted? Just before Jean Harlow moved in with Paul Byrne, she'd lived at 1353 Club View Drive in the Westwood neighborhood of Los Angeles, very near UCLA. Mm-hmm. This is just just out by that golf course, yeah. uh, just south of Wilshire. Wilshire. Yeah. Wil- mm-hmm. Wilshire. Wilshire, yeah. Uh, and in the 1970s, a family moved into this home after it sat vacant for many years. They referred to in a source I found as the H family. And the day before the H family moved in, when Mrs. H went upstairs, her dogs followed her, and they started growling and barking at something in an upstairs bedroom. Then in the hallway right outside the master bedroom, Mrs. H felt an unseen presence and heard something softly whisper into her ear, Please help me. Uh. The next night... Her first night in their new home, when Mr. and Mrs. H were lying in bed, some unseen heavy object struck their bed three times. The H family would go on to report other paranormal activity, lights in the kitchen that would go on and off by themselves, the feeling of being watched. Once while walking through the living room, Mrs. H saw a strange light in the shape of a body floating above her near the ceiling. Get the fuck out. Another time in the corner of the living room, Mrs. H and her aunt or her aunt, had heard the heavy, heartbreaking sobs of a woman in distress emanating from somewhere inside the house. The hairs on Mrs. H's arms stood up and she suddenly felt terribly sad. Cold spots have been felt numerous times by various family members in the kitchen, the downstairs area, and the upstairs bedrooms. Unexplained wind drafts have been felt throughout the house, especially in the kitchen and upstairs bedrooms. The strong smell of a woman's perfume can sometimes be smelled in the children's bedroom upstairs. And sometimes a weird, uneasy feeling can overcome a person in the downstairs bathroom. 
A light knocking at the front door can be heard, but no one is ever there when the door is open. And allegedly, numerous visitors have seen glimpses of a dark little man. I mean, get the fuck out of that house. Is this the same little man seen years later in Jean Harlow's next home? Did Jean ever see this man when she lived in that home almost a century ago? Perhaps this is all nothing more than coincidence and overactive imaginations, or maybe Jean was connected to something, something dark, that we'll never fully understand. Do the people still live in that house? Couldn't find that out with the information. The, there was that, that H, I mean, their full name wasn't even given. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, whoever are the current owners, nothing nothing about them that I can find. You know where that house is, right? I, yeah, I, I had to look on the map, and it's uh, we used to drive pretty close to it all the time. Well, yeah, and we have friends that live in that neighborhood. Hope and ten. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is um, this I will say this is north quite a bit of Hope and Ted. This is um, I looked. It's like two blocks south of Wilshire. Um, like when you're go like where the Playboy Mansion is, is yeah. up north above it. It's just south of that, just a few blocks. And what golf course are you talking about? Um, it's if you were to take Wilshire, uh, and you were to go like um from Santa Monica down to what Century Boulevard or Santa Monica Boulevard. Yeah, it would be on your right. You kind of just it, you just pass by it fairly quickly. It's not the golf course you're thinking of. It's oh, a different one. okay, yeah. okay, yeah. But but you'll, you'll know it after the show. I'll, I'll show it to you on the map. Oh yeah, that one. Is it the one in Hancock Park? Nope. I'm so confused. Yeah. Sorry. Very close to UCLA. Okay. Very very close. Very okay. much in Westwood. Okay, LA yeah. listeners. Sorry, I'm having a directional <laughs> issue. Uh, so let's let's look. Uh, yeah, pretty cool golf course actually too. I didn't know it's like you know been around forever and fairly historical. But huh. let's let's look at the I first photo. Yeah, I don't either. Oh, that's a beautiful, beautiful house. So that's how the Westwood home looked when Jean lived there. Oh, so pretty. Mm-hmm. Here's the interior. Obviously, much more recent than that. That was an illustration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, but still, you can like imagine it back in the day. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I love it. And then uh, this is the burn. Oh no, this is uh yeah the burn Harlow house. Yeah, this was uh, a little bit more recent. Dang. Originally on five acres with little cottages around. The cottages have been sold in separate lots. Oh, yeah. I'm sh- I was just thinking like those five acres have been. It's all parceled up. Parceled out yeah. and somebody made a fucking killing. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's another Burn Harlow house photo. Cute. It's a very cute little house. Mm-hmm. Um, and then here is Jean Harlow. So beautiful. Yep. That's the original blonde bombshell. So beautiful. Jean and Paul Byrne right around the time of their marriage. Mm-hmm. And this photo here, shortly before his death, obviously. He's a bit odd looking. He is. Made their marriage that uh, much stranger in the public eye. Yeah. And then uh, and then here is Sharon Tate, uh, you know, <sighs> shortly before she she died. Yeah. So, I mean, so pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I so love tragic. That. I love that look, too. Like, mm-hmm. The 70s look is my favorite. And for, it's kind of a timeless. I mean, I feel like that could be a picture of somebody taken in L.A. like yesterday, too. Well, right. Right. Yeah, it's my, it, but it is my yeah. absolute favorite. Mm-hmm. Like, I know you prefer, like, the pinup kind of, mm-hmm. like, era. Like, that's a cool look, too, though. Oh, that's my favorite. Mm-hmm. It's my five. Um, okay, well, so, I've, just an interesting tale, right, about somebody who's, uh, you know, was a big star. Big star. Yeah, someone really well-known, and mm-hmm. I never knew any of that. I mean, I actually don't know a lot about Gene Harlow, yeah, quite me either. frankly. Me so, either. excuse me, I was excited when you started to tell the story anyway, so I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then, you know, it's always nice when... You're familiar with a neighborhood because you yeah. can kind of like build it up in your head and picture it and, yeah. and, you know, really build out the story. But that is crazy. I mean, entities can attach to you. Right, right. It's just an odd story where it's like, 
I will say it was a little tougher kind of putting this story together, mm-hmm. you know, from like different different pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just interesting, like little possible connections that all around Gene Harlow in some loose way. Sure. But, but th- those two houses, I mean, it's just weird. The the entity thing that you that Sharon Tate went on to talk about in a magazine interview. Yeah, that's creepy. And, and, and then how similar that was to what happened to her almost exactly a year later. It's pretty creepy. Pretty, I mean, possible foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Like what the hell was that? Yeah. And then and then yeah, having that. And then the weird thing with Paul Byrne's death, I mean, it it seems like he was probably murdered. Did, his his suicide seems very – it was ruled a suicide. Sure. You know, the investigators opened many years later. But that, by that time, everybody's, you know, gone. There's no evidence of anything. You know, the primary suspect died the next day. Yeah. Pretty weird that uh, the his, his, you know, ex-wife or possibly still kind of current common life – it's yeah. a little murky that way. But that uh, she was living on the East Coast – and weird that she would suddenly be dead of a suicide the next night. A, a witness did see her on the boat. It was like a boat, like on, on the on the in the river delta, like uh, some kind of ferry situation or riverboat. Okay. I, I don't know. D- different uh, times, I guess they would you know take those and I didn't realize they would take them around like Sacramento and San Francisco too. Okay, like in the deltas. But they said that they went out to get some fresh air and like three o'clock in the morning and saw her standing by herself sobbing looking over the railing and then that's the last anybody saw her and then she yeah, like, I thought you said she was on the east coast oh sorry she was on the east coast but then when she died she died by Sacramento got it got it and he saw her there fall into the water and then they found her body floating the next morning weird but it is just weird that she would suddenly be out there the day after he died and kill herself right and that his suicide note would seem suspicious yeah yeah a lot yeah. of stuff yeah oh I wonder if there were books written about it or just like deeper diggings into it there is there is like yeah if, you, if, if anybody like fans you know like wanted to dig deeper into this particular story yeah there's a lot of non kind of paranormal horror you know details you can find yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah i'm sure it's really interesting i always think like when you talk about uh the h family that moved into the yeah. club view house uh just i can't believe like we just buy houses without ever spending any real time in them it, it always makes me think mm. that like it's so True. odd you can't okay like a car you can test drive a car right and yeah. some if you're buying um a high-end car i think that they'll let you take the car overnight like oh, you can really, really yeah, if you're buying like a mercedes or you know something that's a bit spendy huh. uh you know you can keep it for a at least 24 hours to really like make sure it's a good fit for you mm-hmm. how weird is it that when it comes <laughs> to houses we yeah. take one 20 minute tour through a house <laughs> right and then we're like okay i'll spend you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars on this like huge yeah. investment of my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And because I know I say like a lot of like, oh, get the fuck out of there. But it's right. like, well, yeah, I mean, obviously I wouldn't want to stay there either if I was seeing these things. But when you've sunk your life savings into something. And that's the thing. But, but you had no warning. Right. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, from now on, if we buy any other house, I am asking if we can like go multiple times at various uh-huh. times, like day, can night. We go, can we go at night and just yeah. hang out? Yeah. And if it's, let's just say we were buying a house that happened to be an Airbnb rental mm. or the family didn't live there, I am totally spending a few days there. Yeah. That's a that good is idea. a weird thing. I mean, it does make sense why a lot of people can't just get the fuck out. Right. Where they've just used, you know, uh, all their money to get the big down payment and you pay all the closing costs and all these extra. Oh, it's and, so expensive. And, and, then, and then if you're to sell right away, you lose your ass. Mm-hmm. You can't get out. So there's a, there's a, a lot of incentive to make it work. Mm-hmm. And that is weird that you're like, yeah, you don't know until your first night staying there. Then you're like, ah, shit. Yeah. And like when we bought our house, I did no investigating. I didn't look yeah. at like any of the websites. I didn't do any Googling. But man, after this podcast, there's no way I'm ever buying a house without deep investigation. Because I will say on the on the, on the, the house that Jean lived in before Burn, if you just put in that address mm-hmm. and put in like haunted, 
you can find articles. I'm a, a, sure. About it. So if you were to do that with a yeah, house you're considering to buy, absolutely. Put in the address, put in haunted, you know, do a few Google searches. I mean, if you want to know, you can probably find out. I mean, there's so much stuff on the web. There's yeah. a good chance that somebody has written something in some, you know, forum, some, you know, chat room, something. Right. right. Yeah. Talk to the neighbors, find out mm-hmm. if anybody died there. Yeah. The history. Oh, yeah. How blindly we make such vast investments. Mm-hmm. What is the most basic gift you have ever given the moms in your life for Mother's Day? Flowers, a candle, some random knickknack you picked up at the last minute because you completely spaced Mother's Day? I have definitely made the mistake of procrastinating gifts for Mother's Day. And then, like the Friday before, I run to whatever store is open and convince myself that, yes, yes, my mom does need another coffee mug that declares she's the world's (laughs) best. So lame. This year, how about one-upping yourself by giving the moms in your life an Aura picture frame? Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to any mom at any age. Aura frames connect easily to Wi-Fi and have unlimited storage so you can share as many pictures as you want. This year, as many of you know, I am on a spending freeze, but one of my carve-outs was meaningful gifts for the people I love. I don't want to give all of the moms in our lives something that won't bring them joy. We are giving Aura frames to the moms in our world because they are timeless, heartwarming gifts. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code SCARED at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What are the things that weigh you down on a day-to-day basis? What kind of stress are you holding on to? Do you spend much of your day going over things in your brain over and over until they are so distracting it affects your mental health? Well, don't worry. You're not alone. We all carry different stressors, some big, some small. When we keep things bottled up, the results can be negative. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest without fear or judgment. It's a place to work through what is heavy on your mind and heart so that you can feel lighter and happier. I'm always holding on to something. It's the way my anxious brain works. I'm continually worried that I've done something wrong, that I've hurt the feelings of someone I love, and that I have let someone down. I'm stressed that I'm not being a good enough mom or wife. I panic that our life will implode at any given moment and it'll all be my fault. Thankfully, I have an amazing therapist who helps me talk through each of these scenarios. After each and every appointment, I feel lighter, happier, and more capable of showing up as my most authentic self. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash scared to death today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash scared to death. Summer is just around the corner. Who's excited? I know I am. With the warmer, sunnier days calling your name, the last place you're going to want to be is in your kitchen, cooking and meal prepping. Make your life easier with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Factors Never Frozen, Always Fresh Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Think of all the extra time you will get outside in the summer sun when you aren't wasting hours in the kitchen. I think I speak for everyone when I say that the summer is the busiest time of the year. We are all trying to cram in as many things as possible, from concerts to vacations and everything in between. With Kyler home from college and Monroe on her break too, I want to spend as much time as possible with them. And while I truly love to cook, the summer is the one time of year that I'm the least interested in doing that for three meals a day. So I lean on Factor to help keep me healthy and in step with my diet. I'm obsessed with the honey yogurt pancakes for breakfast, the pork El Pastor for lunch, and the cilantro lime barramundi for dinner. So easy and saves me so much time. 
Head to Factormeals.com slash death 50 and use code SCAREDTODEATH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code SCAREDTODEATH50 at Factormeals.com slash death 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. You ready for the next tale? I could, yeah, yeah, yeah. That I, I really liked that first story. It, it didn't like freak me out, but I'm, I'm more intrigued like... What happens? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A uh, little bit of setup, but not much. Okay. Okay, so we've discussed a few urban legends here on Scared to Death. Uh, stories supposedly witnessed by a, you know, a friend of a friend of a friend, mm-hmm. told around campfires, school hallways. Uh, you know, also been uh, it's been hard to figure out historically when these stories started. Hard to know who told them first. Now, thanks to the internet, uh, we generally can figure that out for the newer uh, stories. Right. And this is one of those. Jeff the Killer showed up uh, first as a creepypasta story. Uh, creepypasta.com, been around uh, since 2008, a website devoted to sharing scary tales. Okay. And that's the year that the first picture of Jeff appeared online. Now, of course, the general belief with these stories is that someone is, you know, making them up entirely. But sometimes they're also tied to real tragedy. Mm-hmm. So this is just an odd detail. The image first associated with Jeff the Killer is supposedly an altered photo that we'll show later of a real girl, Katie Robinson. Katie was a 4chan chat room user, uh, supposedly who was bullied online before killing herself in 2008. That's awful. Right before Jeff's image appeared. And now many believe that she haunts Jeff the Killer's photo. And I'll show how her photo became Jeff the Killer's photo. Okay. Uh, And then that, you know, so that real darkness is now tied to this story. And and before I tell it, if you're familiar with this story, dear creep or peeper, know that there are many variations of it. So if you bump on a name or an age or any other detail, it's not because I'm telling it incorrectly. Uh, I'm just telling a version you may be unfamiliar with. And I just, if I was hearing it Mm -hmm. and I was somewhat familiar with, I would want to know that detail up front. Okay. So just sharing that. Thank Uh, you. Time now for the tale of Jeff the Killer. The day 13-year-old Jeff and his family moved into their new home was muggy and overcast. Jeff's mom, Melissa, and his dad, Robert, moved boxes from the U-Haul to the hallway while Jeff and his younger 12-year-old brother, Lou, poked around. The house was beautiful, a two-story colonial that finally cemented in Jeff's mind all the stuff he'd been hearing about regarding how his dad's promotion was going to make his life so much better. Jeff had thought that his mom was bullshitting, trying to get him to feel better about leaving behind friends in their old town, but now that he was looking around the house, he had to admit it was pretty nice. What do you think, he asked Lou. It's okay, said Lou, always a quiet, generally unimpressed kid. Hello there, a voice called from across the street. Lou and Jeff turned. It was a middle-aged woman with platinum blonde hair. She introduced herself as Barbara and said she'd lived in the neighborhood for a couple of years and loved it. She hoped they'd love it too. Melissa dropped a box and walked over, thanking Barbara for introducing herself. Do you have any kids, Melissa asked? Just one, Barbara said. Will. He's about to be 11. Then she thought for a second, hey, why don't you two boys come to Will's birthday next week? You'll get to meet some kids from the neighborhood, and some of them will be at school with you in August. Melissa said that was a great idea. Barbara left, and the family continued unpacking, but Melissa could tell that Jeff wasn't in a good mood. He seemed quieter and more resentful than her 13-year-old son usually did. Not for the first time, she wondered if she had made the wrong decision moving them across the country. A few days later, she went up to Jeff's bedroom, where Jeff was drawing in his notebook. She asked Jeff what was wrong. He rolled his eyes and told her that he didn't need to be set up on playdates like some kind of baby. He didn't want to go to Will's birthday party. You're going, and that's final, she said, trying to sound firm but kind. It would be for the best, she reasoned. As she left Jeff's room, she heard Jeff's pencil snap in half. And as Jeff lay in his bed that night, staring to the ceiling, there was a weird tug in his gut. It wasn't pain, 
but it made him feel uncomfortable, like he was too warm, itching to crawl out of his skin. He tried to forget about it, he rolled over, and he went to sleep. The next morning, as he was heating up a breakfast burrito, he felt the same weird twinge. Then he forgot about it. When Lou asked, want to ride bikes today? The sky was blue and cloudless. They sailed down the street and crossed a busy intersection next to a shopping mall. Doing circles in the shopping mall parking lot, they saw a pizza hut, a radio shack, a liquor store, but best of all, GameStop, the two boys shouted. They hopped off their bikes, raced inside, and browsed the racks of video games, shouting back and forth about the games they already had, the games they wanted to play, how much allowance it would take to save up to buy various games. And then the clerk looked out the window, raised her eyebrows, and asked, uh, are those your bikes? Jeff and Lou looked out the window. Three boys were in the middle of the parking lot, two of them on Jeff and Lou's bikes. They would spin the bikes around and jump off, letting the bikes just crash onto the pavement. The third boy stood on the side, drinking a soda. Hey, what the fuck, Jeff shouted as he burst out of the GameStop's doors. Those are our bikes. Didn't see your names on them when we got here, said the boy drinking a soda. Lou broke in. We just moved here, into the house down the street, he explained. We were looking around the neighborhood. Oh, shit, said one of the boys on the bikes. Troy, they probably moved into that piece of shit house with the gravel driveway. I was wondering who was going to move in. Well, Randy, now we know, said Troy as he crashed Lou's bike into the pavement yet again. Lou smiled tightly. Okay, well, Troy and Randy, we, we really want our bikes back, so who the fuck said you could use our names, Troy spat. Jeff felt that same twinge, but this time it built into a full body pain, like he needed to tear a piece of his skin off. Sorry, I guess I should have called you fucking assholes because that's what you are. The boys looked momentarily scared, but then Randy laughed. Oh shit, he thinks he's tough. Jeff and Lou had tried, then tried to walk away, but Randy and Troy took off after them on their own bikes. Where are you going? Troy taunted. To your mom's, Jeff said. We have some money saved up and we hear she doesn't charge much. Hey, fuck you, Troy shouted. All of a sudden, they hopped off the bikes and Jeff and Lou started running. Randy and Troy cursed as they chased him down and eventually Jeff felt a hand pull his arm back almost entirely behind his back, sending a burst of pain through his shoulder. Troy pulled back his other arm and Randy slapped him across the face. Jeff's eyes watered. Troy kicked out Jeff's feet and Jeff sank to his knees. You little bitch, said Randy, and then kicked Jeff into the asphalt. Jeff's nose stung and then he felt blood trickle down his chin. And then Jeff felt something snap inside of him. And he stood up, pushed Troy over, and swung at Randy, his fist connecting with his jaw. Randy staggered back and when he reached out for something to steady himself with, Jeff reached forward offering a hand and grabbed Randy's wrist and snapped it back hard. <sighs> Randy howled as Troy staggered to his feet and barreled towards Jeff. And Jeff, in a sudden burst of inspiration took out the pocket knife his dad had given him for Christmas and flipped out the blade. Oh, fuck. Jeff, stop. Lou stood a few feet away, looking absolutely terrified. Jeff heard a voice that was entirely unlike his own come out of him, a calm, dead-sounding voice. Why stop now? They wanted this. She's calling the cops, Jeff, look. Lou was pointing at the video store clerk, clerk, who was cradling a phone between her chin and shoulder. Fuck, let's go, Jeff shouted back, and the two took off on their bikes towards home. The boys cleaned up in their shared bathroom, wiping bits of gravel out of their hair, and cleaning up the blood from Jeff's nose. Did you really break his wrist? Lou asked. And it would have been easy for Jeff to say no, or that he didn't mean to, but that wasn't what he felt. He happily remembered the sound of the bone snapping. Yes, he said. They hurried upstairs and played video games the rest of the afternoon. But just before dinner time, they hear voices from downstairs, their parents, and then two lower voices. Lou peered down the stairs. Police officers, he whispered. Boys, get down here, shouted Melissa. They came downstairs and saw their mother's tear-streaked face and the furrow in their father's brow. Lou gasped, but Jeff felt strangely calm. 
These officers are telling us you attacked two boys, said Melissa. Mom, they were the ones who took our bikes and started hitting us, said Jeff. Son, said one of the cops, we have three kids, one with a broken wrist, the other is saying you pulled a knife on him. And witnesses saying you did this and then fled the scene. What does that tell us? It wasn't our fault, Jeff insisted. The police officers asked them which one of them was responsible for breaking Randy's wrist. They had both attacked the boys, but breaking a bone meant the boys could face charges. At the very least, the police officer said whoever had snapped the bone and pulled a knife on two unarmed teenagers would probably do a little time in a juvenile detention center. It was me, Lou said. No, Jeff cried out. No, it was me. It wasn't him. No, I did it. Lou showed the officers his pocket knife. Had he taken it out of Jeff's pocket? Jeff's chest constricted and he could feel tears pricking at his eyes. This wasn't what he wanted. Maybe to cause those boys pain, sure, but not Lou. Not his little brother. You should separate them, the police officer told his parents. That'll make this next step easier. Their father locked Jeff in his room while Lou packed up his things. The officers and Melissa drove Lou to a facility that specialized in adolescent violence. Jeff heard the squeal of the car pulling out of the driveway and thought, He's gone. My brother is gone. It's my fault. It's like I've killed him. A few days went by. Jeff played video games in his room and avoided his parents, whom he couldn't see without rage bubbling up inside of him, red hot. The following Saturday, Jeff woke up to Melissa pulling back the curtains. Today's Will's party, Melissa said. Jeff stared at her in disbelief. Did she really expect him to go to the party as if nothing had changed? But one look at her face told him she meant it. He was going to have to earn back her trust. So Jeff got dressed, ate a bowl of cereal, and went across the street. All around, kids were playing. Little kids, Jeff tried not to show how uncomfortable he was. But he felt like all eyes were trained on him. The weird, lanky new kid, dressed in long sleeves and jeans, even though it was the middle of summer. Then the laughter started. Jeff spun around. It was Troy and Randy. Standing in the driveway, Randy spoke first, shouting above the din of the screaming children, Come and get it, bitch. It was as though a surge of electricity went through like a wire through Jeff's brain, sparking life into him. That feeling he'd felt the rage and the disgust and the need to rip something to pieces crystallized. Randy rushed at Jeff. They both fell to the ground. Randy punched Jeff in the nose, and Jeff felt blood slide down his chin. Distantly, he heard the screams of children. Jeff grabbed Randy by the ears and kneed him in the stomach, then scrambled away, scooting on his back, only to feel Troy solid as a rock behind him. Troy kicked him once, twice in the stomach, and Jeff curled into a fetal position on the pavement, trying to protect himself. You got the stuff, Randy gasped from a few feet away, and suddenly Jeff felt something cool and greasy spreading all over him. <gasps> he tried to look, but Troy kicked him in the nose. You sure it's going to work, Troy said? Let's fuck him up, said Randy. And then Jeff heard a lighter spark. Oh my God. And then only pain. Jeff screeched and tried to beat out the flames, but they had caught his clothes. He tried to take off his clothes, but he'd lost so much blood and the pain was so intense. Oh my God. The last thing he saw was his mother carrying a birthday present for Will before he passed out. When he awoke, there was only darkness and soft beeping. He heard the nurse tell his parents he was awake, but Jeff couldn't move. He had a cast on one leg and a thick bandage covering most of his head. He heard the voices of his father, his mother, and his brother before he went under again. A few days later, Jeff was able to stay conscious for a bit longer. His family tearfully told him he'd been able to, he, he, that he would be able to come home the next day, but hearing their voices didn't stir any warmth inside of Jeff. It was like they were strangers. He had only one thing on his mind, and after they left, he asked the nurse if he could take off his bandages. She took them off for him and handed him a small hand mirror. Would you like me to step out of the room, she asked. Jeff ignored her and looked at himself. His face was a mess. The fire burned a scar into his left cheek and extended to his eye. At first glance, it looked like he was almost smiling on that side. The scar was still bright red and mangled tissue spread out on either side of it. 
His eye was white, a lifeless, sightless bulb that couldn't see anything. Oh my god. The hair on the left side of his head was burned off, leaving a few black, wiry strands. The nurse apologized and said she had to put his bandages back on. Jeff smiled. It's okay. There'll be plenty of time for me to admire myself later. The nurse was a bit concerned but tried to let it go. Jeff was on a lot of painkillers after all. When his parents came to collect him, she reassured them that he might act weird for a while because of the sedatives. But Jeff knew in his heart that he didn't feel the way he felt because of the sedatives. As he lay in bed that night, he felt it again. Sick, rich, dark, that syrup of raw, primal emotion... He wanted to scream at his mother to ask her why she'd made him go to the birthday party, why she hadn't listened to him in the first place. He didn't want to go. He liked this feeling. He wondered, what if he, what if he just gave into this feeling entirely? What would that feel like? He got out of bed and walked down the hall. He paused in front of the door to his parents' bedroom and began to remove the bandages from his face. Oh, God. Then slowly, without making a sound, he pushed their door open. And when Melissa and Robert opened their eyes, they saw a dark shape hovering near them. Robert switched on the light. Oh, oh, it's you, he said. Robert, he's holding a knife, said Melissa. Robert said that it was probably the painkillers. It was likely that Jeff had woken up and wandered around disoriented. Throughout this, Jeff stayed still as a statue, perched on the end of their bed, his good eye unblinking. What are you doing? Robert asked his son. Scaring you, Jeff replied with no emotion in his voice. He held up the knife beside his father, Robert. His mother, Melissa, was shaking badly. Robert tried to talk his son down, but Jeff simply tilted his head from one side to the other. One moment, he seemed like a normal-looking boy, but when he tilted his head, they could see the gaping wound, the shiny, burned-off skin. Robert yelled, oh, Okay, you scared me. Is that what you wanted, Jeff? Yes, said Jeff. Now I can start hurting you. Oh, my God. Jeff then slit both his parents' throats <gasps> and covered the sheets and the walls and the floor of their room with their blood, stabbing them many, many times. What the fuck? Lou was asleep. He'd always been a heavy sleeper, and that night, listening to his parents argue, they must have been shouting, just arguing, right? He'd put on his headphones, turned up the music, and passed out. And then someone shook him awake, and it was his brother Jeff, and Jeff was covered in blood. What's going on? Lou asked. Shh said Jeff, and then he pushed his knife deep into his brother Lou's stomach. Oh my god! Go to sleep. Just go to sleep. After killing his family, Jeff vanished. The two neighborhood boys who'd burned him, Randy and Troy, vanished soon after. Both boys disappeared in the middle of the night. Blood in their beds would be found the following mornings, and their bedroom oh. windows had been left open. No other sign of them remained, but their families reported noticing the smell of something burning in their rooms the morning after they disappeared. Maybe the smell of burning flesh. And now occasionally, other children disappear. Or witness Jeff the killer and are for some reason spared. One 12-year-old boy said, I had a bad dream and I woke up in the middle of the night. I saw that for some reason the window was open, even though I remember it being closed before I went to bed. I got up and shut it, and I tried to go back to sleep. And that's when I had a strange feeling like someone was watching me. I, I looked over and into the corner of my room, and that's when I saw him. He stood there just, just watching me. The intruder was described as a young teen with severe facial scarring and blindness in one eye. Oh my god. He'd somehow scaled the side of the three-story residence with ease and broke in without disturbing anyone. The boy said, he told me, go to sleep. Uh. That's when I started screaming. He held me down and I fought back. My dad heard me scream and came in. The kid stabbed him in the shoulder and took off down the hallway. I heard a flash, a or I heard a smash. As I came out of my room, I saw the window and our living room was broken. When I got into bed that night, sometimes I could still hear him saying, Go to sleep. As Jeff's story spreads, he seems to scare some children, and more disturbing, 
He seems to inspire others. Oh, fuck. One woman posted the following about her daughter. She said, my daughter Taylor is an odd girl. She doesn't act like other girls her age. Love makeup and fashion. She prefers to spend time alone, usually on her laptop. Sometimes I hear her laughing and talking to herself in the middle of the night. Every now and again, when I tell her to do her chores, the way she looks at me, it really gives me the creeps. It's like she's not in there anymore. She seems so distant. It's like she doesn't recognize me. I repeat myself saying, you know, look, Taylor, you really have to do the dishes. One day after she started doing the dishes, as I left the room, I heard her mutter something under her breath. One of these days, mom, you'll go to sleep. Oh my God. You'll go to sleep just like the rest. Jeff makes them all go to sleep. What the fuck? (laughs) Creepy story, right? I was doing okay until he started scaling houses. I was literally thinking about like that. We always thinking about like the windows in our house. I'm like, okay, kids' bedrooms upstairs. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, it's creepy story. Creepy. I mean, it's, there's a, yeah, there's a yeah, just something Ooh. about it and a reason that story like kind of went viral compared to you know so many other creepy pastas that didn't. Now here's that photo I talked about earlier. Oh yes, yeah, so this is Katie you know, girl. Sad. I mean, and there's no. I will say there is just a lot of rumors that that's what this picture is. But it's not, I, I wasn't able to locate an obituary, which doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Okay. Because there's been a lot of like on Time Suck, a lot of true crime things. There isn't, you know, you just a little bit of Googling doesn't always find an obituary for somebody who definitely died. Okay. So this first story, this is Katie, Ro- or first photo is Katie Robinson. Okay. Who you did not talk about in the story. No. So this is the, this is the girl who allegedly committed suicide. Okay. And this is the, the photo of her that then this is, you know, oh, yeah, online bullying, right? Um, o- online bullying. Online bullying. And then this next photo is an altered photo of Katie. Oh my God. That's so creepy. And then the next photo. Oh my God. This is Jeff the killer. So altered further. What? Yeah. And then there's, there's a variety of other Jeff the killer images, but it that's like the that first Momo one. Thing. Right. That's the first one. And then it, and then it evolved and, you know, frankly got a little bit scarier, a little bit creepier and there's different variations, but that's Katie altered. And then the first, uh, Jeff the killer photo. Oh, so I'm, I'm sorry. So Katie, they think that she is Jeff the killer. I don't understand. No, they, they just, her, the, they just think that the photo, well, they just know they, they think that the photo uh, of Jeff the Killer is based on an altered photo of a girl who actually did commit suicide. Oh, that's how it like. Uh, and so, so like, so when this story was originally posted, it was posted along with that photo that we just saw. The last one. The last one, and okay. then that photo was traced back to, you know, supposedly this this photo of Katie. Well, that doesn't really make sense to me because why would Jeff the Killer look like Katie? I, you, nobody, I mean, it, 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 it's an urban legend. Yeah. And that's just the photo that they chose to use. And then people doing a little online sleuthing were able to figure out that that photo had been altered from, they think, this photo of Katie. And so there's just a real tragedy, supposedly. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, do you, that makes sense. Like, supposedly this girl kills herself. Mm-hmm. And then somebody takes the photo of a girl who killed herself as a result of online bullying and then alters it into the photo of this urban legend monster yeah yeah, yeah so just a related but not really yeah, yeah 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 not related to the story right i know i was related trying to like, in photo alone yeah i was trying to make it make sense where i'm like what does her no, suicide no have relation to, do? to the story nothing nothing that, that kind of annoys me actually like why? I, I just included it just because it's like again like real life tragedy connected oh, in yeah. some way not annoyed with you annoyed yeah. with people like why would you take a real life tragedy and then sure morph dark. it into some fucking yeah. Connected to some creepy pasta yeah. urban legend, like that's pretty fucked up. If that girl mm-hmm. did kill mm-hmm. herself, mm-hmm. and True. I'm her family, I'm furious. True, true. 
that you would exploit my daughter's death. Yes. Yes. That's fucked up. Yes. Yeah. Well, that makes absolutely. me real mad. I have like a little rage inside me. I got some Jeff rage. <laughs> That's what I'm going to call it. I hate that mom. In the story? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, well, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, your kid gets in a fight. Yeah. And it doesn't, I mean, obviously, like, not all the details are there and all, like, okay, supposed this, supposed yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. But, like, really? You just let Lou get hauled off to juvie after those other kids fucking started it? You don't even try and, like, get all the parents together and get to the bottom of it? And yeah. then you force your other kid <laughs> to go to the party? Sure, And you sure. don't even go and, like, supervise? Sure. And, and try and make sure. I mean, I get that he was thirteen, but you don't. She try was coming and, over right after him. But yes, well, clearly the ju- the ju- she wasn't coming right <laughs> over because then that wouldn't have happened. She came over yeah. at least a half an hour later. And again, there's not like news clippings and stuff. I know. but I but I see what you're saying. Yes, uh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. The, the the juvie part is a little like I don't know that that's how that would happen. But whatever, I don't know. Yeah, what you else? have to go to court and stuff. You can't just get right. hauled off. You could be arrested, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I think that this 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 like lore like lays itself out more like a movie mm-hmm. where you know they just kind of gloss over some of the details. Yeah, sort of the details that would like if you, if you went into them too deeply, would yeah. just take too much away from the scares. Right, 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 yeah. right. Well, I hope that Jeff doesn't come for a visit. Yeah, hopefully he's not real. And and, and that's the one. And, and we know just so you know, uh, especially like new listeners, we. For just for variety, we throw in like the urban legends. Most yeah. of the stories are, you know, somebody claiming like, "No, I definitely saw this weird thing happen." But then we've gotten actually really good response for some like like the uh, pull pull stop like, like some Whoa. some previous urban that legend stories. So they're fun to throw in for variety. Totally. All right. Well, uh, do you have your squishy squish? I do, Mister Squishy. I got Mister Squish. Okay, so this first story, I, I would say it's like a little bit of a warm-up. It, it okay. Actually, it kind of falls in line with yours. Like, not the most terrifying story, but definitely, yeah. like, makes you think. Okay. And I think the most fascinating piece of this story, uh, I think the writer does a really good job talking about how skeptical of a person he should be. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, it's pretty interesting. So, uh, he says, Captain of the Creepers and Princess of the Peepers. <laughs> My name is Jake, and I'm a longtime fan of your stand-up. That's nice, Jake. Thank you. Yep, and time sucks since it started, and I've been happy to have now followed you over to Scared to Death. Yes. The context of my life may or may not be important to the story. I felt it was, so I'm including it. Mm -hmm. I'm a 29-year-old male, a husband, a Christian pastor, and I live in New York. I've been married for six years, been a pastor for four, with a congregation of about 3,000 in size, and most importantly, was recently scared to death by a podcast of yours. I grew up in an irreligious home that was unremarkably agnostic and hardly stepped foot in a church before I was 17. Mm-hmm. The house I grew up in was built in the early 1900s. There were servants' quarters for the house next door. I'm sending this to you because an early scared to death episode brought memories back that I have not thought of in a long time. Okay. Someone was describing an apparition they were seeing as having skin like burnt paper. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember that story. I didn't remember the name of it, but, but yeah, I remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. I have never heard that before, but I have seen it before. Uh. I was listening to the podcast while on a run, and when I heard that description, I stopped and immediately got flashbacks to my childhood. I turned around and ran back home. I don't know why, but I think it's worth men- mentioning. I shit my pants on the block run. Oh, my God. Back home. That's never happened to me before, which if you're a runner, it happens. Yeah. Uh but I, I, I don't think it's the story that got me that badly or that my stomach was fucked up, but I can't help but think that the two were completely related. The memory and right. the upset stomach. Right. A few of the memories that came back when listening to the podcast. 
when I was around eight and for the first time ever, I woke up and was unable to move. I know this now to be sleep paralysis. I could see that my closet door and my bedroom door were both shut. I never shut my bedroom door when going to bed. After a few moments, I saw the closet door opening slowly with a uh-huh. hand and arm coming out Jeez. of it. Following that was the rest of the figure. It was staring at me. No blinking, no breathing, no quick movements, just slowly making its way out from the closet, then closing the door behind itself, moving toward the bedroom door, and then leaving out the bedroom door. The whole time it stared at me. Uh, the whole time it stared me down it had this human like form and the whole reason i'm and the whole reason i'm writing this is it had skin that looked like black burnt paper i didn't say anything and it didn't say anything to me but it did have its finger up to its mouth telling me oh my god i couldn't move or talk but i didn't have any problems i not moving or talking anyways this happened on several occasions throughout the years and changed as time went on when I was 12, this same entity came out of the closet, but the body language was different this time. It was jittery and frantic. Uh. It moved quickly this time. It crawled up the wall with its head facing me, but its body facing the wall. In, the, in that same way, it crawled onto the ceiling towards me and stopped right above me. It covered the distance in a matter of a few seconds, and it looked like it wanted to leap at me. But instead, it crawled back into the closet. This happened two more times over the next year. When I was about 15, I began to speak to it. Not when it was there, because I was always under sleep paralysis, though. A few times when talking to it, I would hear things from within the walls and the ceiling of my room. It sounded like an angry, muffled, distant murmur that grew in intensity. Mm -hmm. I would end up smelling sulfur and smoke, but could not tell where it was coming from. I was 16 the last time I saw it. I had sleep sleep paralysis like usual. It was moving quickly up the wall and onto the ceiling. It didn't seem like it was there for me. It seemed a bit angry, but it looked like it was trying to escape. It wasn't even looking at me. It came down to the floor and stood by the closet and stared at the door for what seemed like minutes without moving. It turned and looked at me and then stared at me for a few minutes. It finally jerked open the closet door and stared at me while it closed the closet door on itself. This was the last time I ever saw it. The skin like burnt paper is what made me reach out. I wonder if anyone else has seen something like this. One would think as a pastor, I would be able to make even the tiniest bit of sense of this. But, well, I fucking can't. And I would rather be honest about my ignorance than lie in arrogance. What I can say is this. I came to find out in my adult life that my aunt, lived with, who had lived with us while I was growing up, was a witch. My brother also became a witch, though hid it from the family in our youth, and is still a witch today. While remodeling my parents' home, we have found several carvings in the framing of the house that predate our time there. We also found small pieces of wood with carvings in them and papers with writing and symbols on them hidden in the floor and in the ceiling and throughout the crawl space under the house. These were burned upon their discovery. These could have been put there before or since we moved into the house. We do believe them to be the work of my aunt or my brother or their witch friends." I've never told anyone else about the apparition with skin like burnt paper other than my counselor. And you can be sure as shit that he's going to be hearing about this again since I brought it up to you. (laughs) I still can't believe your podcast described it in the exact same way. 
I was just starting to believe that maybe it was all my imagination or hallucinations as I have been on various medications throughout my life. But maybe I'm not as crazy as I thought I was. <laughs> it is somehow more comforting just to think of myself as m- mentally unstable. Yeah. At least it's just between me and myself then. Respectfully, Jake. Yeah, Jake, that's interesting. That's I, I would almost, if I was Jake, I would want to um, talk to my aunt or brother and be like, have you ever seen something like this? I right. mean, I mean <laughs> what a crazy possibility that is. Like, what if there is some kind of invocation or incantation kind of ritual that you actually could perform? Oh, my God. To conjure something. That, you know, like. The, well, it's kind of like what something. a Ouija board does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And that story, I think the story he talked about, it was a very early on one. If It's the one I, I'm pretty sure it's the one where the kid witnessed the car uh, wreck. That's and, what I And think the guy too. burning alive in his car. And then, like, his dad tried to help pull the guy out, but he couldn't. Mm-hmm. And then he saw – I think that's when it was that thing with, like, the burnt paper skin. It would, like, was, come visit him mm-hmm, in his dreams mm-hmm, or at night room. or his house. And then yeah. they would find footprints on the floor, like, mm-hmm. ashy remnants of Oof. where this thing had been walking. That was one of my favorite stories we've uh, come across so far. I just got chills all over remembering it. That was, an, that was a really intense one. Um, wow. that's that, that, Yeah, that, that will be interesting to see if anybody else reports. Yeah seeing something because that's a very specific detail Mm -hmm. so if you have had like a similar experience yeah like black burnt papery skin yeah yeah please absolutely like uh send it to us and then maybe in the subject line you can just say like uh you know burnt skin paper or Mm -hmm. burnt paper like skin or in response to jake's story like something so that we can identify it quickly on a humanoid type entity yeah because if there's more like this that I, I would thing. love to follow up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good luck, Jake. Yeah. Yay. Okay. Um, and so this next story comes from Ohio, which always gets a little bit of a... I, kinda, I, kinda, I haven't had the goosebumps for whatever reason in a little while. Like, that one kind of got like, what the... What is that? Well, the fact that it kept coming back, you know, and then it eventually right. just went away. Because my, my head's in a w- maybe more open place recently. I did a multiverse oh, episode yeah. on Time Suck, and it kind of scrambled my brain a little bit. Oh, Yeah. And I haven't felt the same <laughs> since doing like all the research for that because <laughs> my brain just keeps wandering into like the possibilities of infinite universes and parallel universes and what could be in those and how could they loop around us and connect with us. Because there's like – because it, it's it's like, you know, a lot of like um, scientific thinkers like, you know, some of the brightest minds in science are think, thinking this, you know, is possible. That there's or, multiple or planes. Yeah. yeah, that there's like an infinite amount of universes. And like, you know, when we make choices in life, we, we split off and then create these other, like entire universes. It's really tough to get my brain around. It's like a ripple effect. Yeah, yeah. Like mm-hmm. this concept. And then I just then I just think, well, God, well, what if there's this thought that, you know, uh, in some of all these other universes, there's so many different possibilities that life could be kind of like it is here, but not exactly like. Like the upside down. Like the upside down. And what if like there's a, a plane of existence that's like ours in many ways and there's a different version of you and a different version of me but there's also demons <laughs> things that are like floating around like with people in a very real like ah yeah. it just makes my mind go into like all these crazy possibilities yeah it makes me think like what 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 is this little like, burnt paper skin thingy is some creature that somehow got from one you know parallel universe to, I don't know I do just, kind of uh, wonder that ugh. like demons and stuff like uh if I die mm-hmm. and then I come back to haunt you, to, to be around you, and when I say haunt, I don't even necessarily mean terrify you, right? Like I'm just here. Right. What, I'm if around- what if you're in a world just right next to this one? Right, right. And what if I can just like occasionally reach out and touch you and let right. you know I'm there? Oh my God, it blows my mind. So then why couldn't uh, his little creepy closet dweller be the same? Right. Why? The, the, I, and and I what I've if said- some things in those little parallel right next to us things are not good? 
Well, right, because, and I think we've said this before, I've said this before, there are not good people in this plane, in this mm-hmm. universe, in this existence. Mm-hmm. So let's just say they die here and then they go off into some parallel and then they come back and they're now they're like, ho, 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 I was a murderer. I was, a, I, I, you yeah. know, I would stalk people and hunt them down and kill them. So like, look at how much fun this is. I don't get to kill them, but I get to fuck with them infinitely. Like it's a different kind of uh, psychological warfare, basically. Sometimes, sometimes I worry that they could kill us, and then when, and when people die in just like like strange ways, like oh, they just went to sleep, they were totally healthy, and we don't know, they just didn't wake up. Like, what if something got them? Well, it's usually like a heart attack or something. What if someone? What if that's the that's what the coroner finds? Mm-hmm. But what if what caused the heart attack is some encounter? I, I suppose it could be. I don't see why it couldn't be because there's no way to prove like what caused the heart attack. Mm-hmm. Meaning, like we know what a heart attack is and what it does yeah, what if to the heart, died from but like. Fright? And what if the fright was caused by something that knew it could scare you to death? Do you ever think that we should just have cameras running in our house 24-7? No. Because you don't want to know? No, I'd, I'd rather not know if there's something. like Because that, I would much rather. If some creepy little paper guy <laughs> like wanders through our bedroom in the middle of the night, but I never know about it, well, then it doesn't affect me. Right. But if it shows up on a camera, then I can never, ever get it out of my head for the rest of my life. But maybe you can catch him. No one ever catches these things. That's the worst maybe part. Maybe it could be the first. You could set up some oh, traps. Man, I could be a, like the Demon Buster. <laughs> the Ghostbusters, I'll be Demon Buster. Sweet. Will you have a song? <laughs> I have to think about it, but okay, yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Well, let's get into this story from Ohio. Um, and, and the reason I'm including this story, I just want to say, is that, and I feel like this story, again, like the other one, like not abhorrently spooky, mm-hmm. uh, not obviously spooky, although although I guess that one really kind of like got you going. Mm-hmm. Um but it, it's generally how I feel about all the encounters and feelings that I've had in my life. So I, I felt mm-hmm. like there's some, it felt valid to me because okay. it's how I feel. Okay. So, hey, Dan and Lindsay, I hope this finds you well. First off, I really enjoy your show because I'm a total creeper. You guys pick great stories, and it does help me to know that some people may have had similar experiences to mine, which may mean that I'm not just a crazy, crystal-loving nutbag. <laughs> Yay! I, she, you can't see it, but she wrote crystal-loving in all caps, just Funny. like sure. a little smiley face. Uh, I don't know if this story will hold up creep-wise to the others, but I thought I'd share it just the same. I'd like to start out with a little background. I promise it's all relevant somehow. I'm a 35-year-old herbalist and greenhouse manager who grew up on 74 acres of land in rural Ohio. Our house was built in the late 1700s, is completely surrounded by cornfields and woods, and has literally a mile-long dirt driveway with an old set of train tracks running through it. Cool. Cool setup. Yeah, it says, P.S., this is now a bike path like that. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. Old house. Mm Mm-hmm. Needless to say, my house was the spot for all of the Halloween parties. The area is well known for being the birthplace of, I'm not going to say this right, uh, Tecumseh? Tecumseh? Yeah, I kept looking it up and I couldn't find like proper Tecumseh and was once home of the Shawnee. We have a few revolutionary, revolutionary war battle sites around our town and our own Adena Indian mound in one area. Okay, Mm -hmm. so now on to the story. When I was 13, I attended a sleepover at my slightly older cousin's house. Nothing really out of the ordinary was happening until somehow we got our hands on a Ouija board, of course. I was a little hesitant, but I was the youngest and didn't want to seem like a baby, so I went with it. We were just playing around, asking random questions, but then my cousin decided she wanted to try and reach, wait for it, 
Brandon Lee. Remember, this was... Oh, yeah, The Crow. (laughs) Remember, this was around the year that The Crow came out and she had loved it. Mm -hmm. At this point, red flags and alarm bells are going off in my head, but I figured I'd never really experienced anything weird and this probably wasn't real, so how bad could it be? Yeah. Boy, was I stupid. I'm not exactly clear on the details of how we got into contact with who or whatever it was, but the Ouija board session ended with my cousin asking for a sign that he was here, and he rustled a pom-pom, you know, like the cheerleading mm-hmm. thingy and that she had had on her dresser. There was no fan, no cat, no open window, and it was sitting above all of us so that none of us could have blown on it. Obviously, we all flipped out, threw the board in the box, and (laughs) vowed to never touch one of those things again. Little did I know that it really didn't matter if I did or did not touch a Ouija board ever again. Throughout the next few weeks, I would begin to experience my house, remember the Halloween-worthy house, in a completely new light. I constantly felt as if I were being watched, and I would hear disembodied, disembodied, indiscernible whispering in my room at night, so much so that I would turn on the radio to sleep at night. I even woke my mom up one night to see if she could hear it, but it had stopped by the time she came into the room, Mm -hmm. and she probably thought I was crazy. Later that week, I had someone tap me on the shoulder while I was doing the dishes, when I turned around and realized I was the only one home. And then one night, while I was, again, getting ready to take a shower, every shower gel, conditioner, shampoo bottle all fell off the shower ledge all at once, as if someone had taken their arm and just knocked Mm -hmm. them down all at once. Obviously, I did not take a shower that evening. However, none of this was as terrifying as what happened at the creek. There is a small creek that runs through a field behind our house. This was my favorite spot to sit and read. I'm an only child, so nerd. I would take a blanket and some snacks, sit on the blanket at the bank of the creek, and read whatever book was striking striking my fancy that week. This day was no different than any other summer day. It was bright, sunny, and beautiful outside, and I couldn't wait to get down to the creek and read my new book. I had grabbed my blanket and a sandwich and started the four-minute walk to my favorite spot. When I reached the spot, the birds were chirping and the creek was rippling peacefully and steadily. I laid my blanket down, breathed in the warm green summer air, and as I sat down on the blanket, I noticed the beauty of the dappled sun streaming down through the bright green leaves of the ash and oak trees. This is going to be a great day for reading, I thought, Mm -hmm. as I cracked the spine on my new novel. I can really picture that. Yeah. I began reading the first few words on the page when I was suddenly stricken with an immense bout of unexplainable terror. Every hair on my arms and on the back of my neck suddenly shot straight up as the area became so cold and deathly quiet. No birds. The sun was still shining, but I could no longer feel it. The only thing I could feel was an immediate sense of get the fuck out. (laughs) What the hell was going on? I thought to myself, looking around, expecting to see some kind of human intruder. Then, what I can only describe as in my mind's eye, I saw him. Directly across the creek from me, crouched down on all fours, knees bent out to the sides, almost inhuman, fingertips touching just the silt, mouth gaping open in a silent gasp, a young Native American man, obviously from another time, with long black hair and wide, enraged, and unnaturally glowing bright blue eyes. Eyes that seemed to scream, get out. I shot up, grabbed my blanket, ran to the house, and never returned to the area of the creek to read ever again. Even as an adult, I avoided looking at that area when I would come home for the holidays. It wasn't until a few years ago that I went back to that same spot. 
on a summer visit, I had been talking to my mom about wanting some elderberry bushes to transplant to my own backyard. Remember, herbalist, so also nerd. She said she knew where they grew on the property and we could go dig up a few to transplant. I said, great. I threw my new phone on the counter since I'd probably crush it in our journey, grabbed a shovel and a bucket and started to follow her out of the garage door. It was then that I realized she was heading to the terrifying spot by the creek, the place where I had seen the angry blue-eyed man just 20 years before. Mm -hmm. Again, alarm bells and red flags are going off in my head, but I quickly dismiss them because by now I've had other similar experiences, but I'm also thinking that probably didn't really happen. You were just a kid. It'll be fine. So I follow her to the spot where the elderberries are and we begin digging. I'm starting to get the heebie-jeebies, but I'm shrugging them off just because I'm already creeped out by this particular location, and my mother knows nothing about what happened here, so I proceed to dig up three small shrubs. I'm placing them in the bucket, joking about something to my mom, when out of friggin' nowhere, both me and my mom hear the GPS lady voice Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. comes through your phone say, go home. What? I freeze back to the creek take a deep breath and calmly ask my mom does your phone do that a lot she pulls out her old school (laughs) flip phone looks at it oddly and says no it doesn't even have gps that's weird and just starts to walk back to the house like everything is just fine needless to say i ran my ass back to the house and have no plans of ever going back to that spot ever again Quasi creepy side note I planted all three of those shrubs They grew like crazy and were definitely elderberry But have never produced one single berry It could be a pollination problem Or it could be yet another fuck you For my glowy blue eyed spirited friend All I know is that before the Ouija board night I hadn't had one strange experience Right after that, I've had all kinds of experiences and encounters often throughout my life. Just to be clear, when I say encounter, it's not like some Haley Joel Osment, I see dead people thing. Mm -hmm. It's just a shadow or a sense, and then I sometimes... And then I sometimes somehow know what's there. It's weird. I have no way to explain it other than my mind's eye kind of visual. I've never told anyone about any of this, and I'm actually pretty skeptical about many of the supernatural encounters I read and hear about, but I do believe in what I feel and what I see. I just keep thinking that maybe if I would have steered clear of the Ouija board, they may have never found me in the first place. Like I said, I don't know if the story holds up creep out wise, mm-hmm. but it happened and I thought I would share. If this actually ever does see the light of day, feel free to make edits. <laughs> keep up the great work. You guys are awesome. Steph. Thanks, Steph. No, that, was, that was creepy. It is creepy. The, yeah, the weird thing about GPS, I mean, maybe it's just a setting that I've never used. But my phone never says that. My phone doesn't say anything to me like that. Well, and if Do- you remember. It doesn't, doesn't say anything unless I'm talking to it. Well, and if you remember, she left her new iPhone at home. Right. She so makes the that only, very yeah, so the, yeah, so the only phone is just like the mom's flip phone. Which doesn't which have doesn't GPS. Which doesn't say, say, say anything. So it's just like home. that. Yeah, she was just that, that sound, that, <laughs> that voice. Like, maybe like in her head, but like it just came out of nowhere. Like, uh that's so weird and then actually seeing a figure mm-hmm. and, and, that, and that Ouija board stuff it's like kind of back what I was saying before this story sometimes I just wonder it's like okay if there are these other things around and I, I also wonder often about the power of the human mind mm-hmm. where there's so much of our brain we don't use what if what if we have like weird powers that we don't even know about that like get like turned on sometimes where we can pull something mm-hmm. I don't know from whatever the ether in, in, into this world like, 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 like you're opening a door and you're yeah, and the yeah. power of like the belief of people huddled around this board and moving this thing together can somehow like actually pull something. 
Well, I, I mean, I'll say that like uh, I had weird experiences, you know, in my youth that were, I mean, we've talked about them on here, just like, mm-hmm. you know, messing around with Ouija boards with my friends and like things happening that were unexplainable. Um, I've had strange feelings like, unfortunately, just for like a stretch in my childhood, there mm-hmm. were various family members that it's just like people just kept dying. It was kind of like a weird yeah. time in my family, but I would, I would feel like someone was with me and I would always acknowledge them like, okay, I hear you. I feel you. The other day I was like just talking to my grandpa in our kitchen because I just mm-hmm. felt like he was with me. But from my youth until now, okay, so let's say like 16, 17, when even younger than that, we were playing with Ouija boards because we weren't old enough to like drive places and do mm-hmm. things. So we were having big slumber parties, you know, so from like 13 or 14, when that phase yeah. kind of stopped till we did this podcast, yeah. I haven't really given much credence to any of those things. I don't sure, really think sure. about it. I would see the occasional scary movie and think like, oh man, mm-hmm. I'd be spooked out for a night. Mm-hmm. But between doing this podcast and beginning Reiki, mm-hmm. you know, and just... I do feel more things. And so Mm -hmm. lending credence to what you're saying, have I opened that up more? Mm -hmm. And the person who uh, my like energy healer, you know, she does Reiki on me. I mean, she has told me like every person is different. Mm -hmm. And when she does it, she can kind of get a sense if someone would be maybe more open, if their um, ability for being, I was going to say for being a psychopath, (laughs) (laughs) psychic, (laughs) for being psychic, uh, she can kind of like pick up on things. Yeah. And according to her, I have like a very open pathway, I huh, guess is yeah, what it would be called. Okay. But I'm like, I don't fucking want that. So I don't entertain it. I don't yeah. put more energy into it. But I bet if I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the power of the mind, like, is it a part mm-hmm. of my brain that I'm just not using? And if yeah. I used it, would I be able to tap right. into something? But I don't fucking want to know. And, and I know I'm not comfortable with it. And I know that there's psychological phenomenons that can describe a lot of this stuff or like sleep paralysis. If like you really want to look into it. But, um, but, and I'm such a skeptical person that especially for like a lot of our listeners are also time suck listeners Yeah, where it's like, I will make fun of people and will continue to make fun of people who act like they know all of this stuff in absolute terms Sure, that they can teach you how to open up doors to other worlds. I'm like, those people are still always read as full of shit to me, mm-hmm. but the, but the possibility of those doors being possible or something like that is, is feels more possible than ever to me randomly also because that's that silly multiverse thing. You know, it, I, we spent a lot of time talking about the Big Bang Theory, mm-hmm. and, and this very scientific theory has made me more open than I've been in a long time to the possibility of just just whatever. Mm-hmm. Where it's like I, I don't I don't I don't ever see myself being dogmatic about it about like well this stuff has to be real because I know I can't right. prove it. Right, it's just a hunch, just mm-hmm. a feeling. Mm-hmm. But like that Big Bang thing, you know, you go back to all these universe speculation theories, and maybe there's a bunch of universes, maybe there's just this one, maybe they're infinite, maybe they're on top of each other, maybe they're spread out, whatever. Mm-hmm. But they all go back to this question of yeah, but how did any of them or just the one of them get here right and there's this big bang theory where it's like essentially that there was uh this teeny little speck of you know subatomic and all these little like particles that was Mm -hmm, like you know mm -hmm. small like like atomic sized that just in in less than one second went and just became everything Mm -hmm. and that to me is a is a god power that is something maybe i'm just not scientifically smart enough i will always leave that open sure (laughs) to, to really understand things that would explain it but in my mind it's like that to me proves that there is a lot of shit we just don't understand, may never understand. Mm-hmm. And if I let my mind go there, it's, it's pretty fun because yeah. then I just think like all this stuff could be real. Yeah. And the good stuff too. Right, right. Not, not just the, the monsters. A- absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I kind of love thinking that like my grandpa's around, mm-hmm. you know, keeping an eye on me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of makes me feel like, okay, mm-hmm. like hip hops, you know? 
And yep, just absolutely. not that it's going to protect me or save me from anything. It's just, um, it's just comforting, which is great because I have a sweet little story to wrap okay. it all up. That's kind of <laughs> in that, that realm. So, yeah. uh, just a sweet little something for y'all. Says, hey, howdy, DNL. I wanted to give you a warmer, happier ghost story that may not provide a big impact, but could be a bit more soothing for those nights alone. My grandmother was in her late 70s when she passed away. She was a fantastic lady that had been hit hard by life and by a serious case of arthritis. She lived most of her adult life with curled fingers Mm. and bad pain, but always had a great spirit and funny, profane tales to tell me and my older brother (laughs) when we were kids. Often the family often the family knows when the time is getting close to say goodbye to a loved one mm-hmm. and my mother and her sisters gathered to spend time with their mom about a week before she passed. Over that week my grandmother seemed happier and unafraid of her fate and then one night she let out that my grandfather had been visiting her at night. My grandfather had passed away almost 20 years prior. My mm. mother and sisters asked if she was scared but my grandmother replied why would I ever be scared of your dad? He comes to me at night and caresses my hair and he spoons me. Aww. I love his warmth. <laughs> my grandmother passed away a few days later. Although I miss her very much, I'm glad she was happy to be called home. Love endures and never forgets, Al. That is very sweet. That's so sweet. Made me teary-eyed. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It's like, oh, Somebody could come back for you? Yeah. Aw. I mean, since you're going to die first, are you going to come back for me? I'll come back for you. Okay. If I die mm-hmm. first, I'll come back for you. You'll know, you'll know it's me. I'll pinch your bottom. <laughs> <laughs> that's a sign okay that's a time that's a sign it's time to come home oh my god just just, just before we uh end um on <laughs> on that note i just ran we just went you know visited my grandpa who you know yeah. having some you know just older yeah. people struggles uh but he's um he's almost uh 88 and he's you know not feeling great right now but i did notice when we we're all in the living room that he was standing uh grandma betty was standing next to him yeah and it was so funny to see i watched his his right hand drift up and give her a little pinch on the butt stop it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> still got it so cute <laughs> uh, ah, that's adorable <laughs> do you have anything else nah, no just that was a nice nice little note to end on yeah Ah, uh, well, that's all for today. There's, there's good ghosts out there. Uh, please keep sending in your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. And we continue to thank Heather Rylander for uh, yes. helping curate those. Yes, she's the best. For anything else, email info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Say hi to me. Mm-hmm. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram and direct mm-hmm. message at Scared to Death Podcast. Subscribe Bad Magic Productions on YouTube. Uh, thank you for listening or watching Scared to Death. A bad Magic production. Thanks to the team, Logan and Kate on social media, the talented folks who also design and manage badmagicmerch.com, Zach Flannery producing and directing uh, more and more episodes now under Joe's guidance. Yay! Thanks to Sophie Evans for finding many of our stories, and thanks to uh, Joe Paisley uh, for um, and Zach Cohen and Jeffrey Montoya for the uh, sound bets for adding those to the shows. And enjoy your nightmares, creeps and peepers. Hope you were scared to death. Bye. If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through but has no home here within scared to death.